Let's remain standing for a quick word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for these gifts and offerings and uh, the gifts and offerings and lives that they represent. Would you use them for your glory in Nottingham, in all nations, and in the next generation? And as we come to your word, would you speak to us, Lord? Would you illuminate the scriptures to us? And would you encourage us by the power of your spirit? Amen. Amen. Please do take your your seats and keep open Mark chapter 5, because we're going to be uh, diving right in. Uh, We're continuing our series in the book of Mark tonight. And you'll know probably that Mark is a series of eyewitness accounts of the life Um, and ministry and work of Jesus Christ. And this evening's passage in chapter 5 focuses in on two distinct events that happened on the same day. So let's get right in there at verse 21. Let's read again. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little girl, my daughter, she's dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Jairus was one of the synagogue rulers He had a position of authority in the religious community. And yet, in this moment, he is as vulnerable as any parent who's consumed with anxiety for their child. He would have heard something of this man, Jesus, who is attracting crowds, casting out demons, healing loads of people, and speaking in the synagogues. In fact, at times, Jesus in the synagogues was upsetting or even offending those in religious leadership. But here, we see a different reaction, don't we, in Jairus. In his desperation, in his fear for the life of his child, he seeks out Jesus Falling at his feet, he begs him, my daughter is sick, she's going to die, please come, touch her and heal her. And Jesus goes immediately, immediately with him, and the crowd go along too. And as they walk along, everyone's jostling and pushing, the people are here, there and everywhere. Imagine it's a bit like the proximity of people on the Nottingham tram at rush hour. Or perhaps a better example is, you know, at the end of a venue when everyone's leaving an event, everyone's going in the same direction, but they're pushing right up against one another. Everyone is going in the same direction, and they would all be pressing in around Jesus. But suddenly, he stops. And he stops because he knows someone in the crowd has touched him. The disciples are somewhat baffled. Everyone is touching you, Jesus. 
There's no such thing as personal space right now. But instead, Jesus responds. He's noticed something, hasn't he? The disciples are baffled, but I wonder how Jairus felt. Jesus had, had appeared to respond immediately and swiftly to him, and now he's abruptly stopped. I wonder if inwardly, Jairus's anxiety flashed into frustration at this abrupt stop. Let's read on in verse 25. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, Her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see, the people are crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus knows that a woman has touched him and he wants to speak to her. Now, we don't know the name of this woman But Mark gives us a decent amount of information about her lived experience. He tells us that she's been chronically unwell. She's been ill. Her illness has lasted 12 years. It involves bleeding, which likely means vaginal bleeding. She has suffered significantly at the hands of many doctors. And she's now in poverty because she's spent all of her money on medical care. You know, Mark would have expected his readers to know that this bleeding also undoubtedly left her at the fringes of the community because of her ritual uncleanness according to Jewish law. Rachel Jones, in her book, A Brief Theology of Periods, yes, really, describes it like this. Worse than the pain is the shame. This is more than a leak on a chair. This woman has been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. What were you doing 12 years ago? Under the laws of Leviticus, that means 12 years without sharing a bed with her husband, if she had one. 12 years without enjoying the embrace of another. 12 years without coming to the temple to worship. 12 years of exclusion and shame. You know, as I read about this woman, I wonder what life was like for her. 
it is clear she must have been living with some kind of gynecological disorder. The passage says, she had suffered. That word really strikes me, suffered. How did she live with the grim agony of that bleeding, I wonder? Illnesses like this can be completely debilitating and life-limiting in today's world. And back then, things must have been different still. Sanitary products, painkillers, specialist referrals, unlikely. Instead, she'd spend all she had on doctors who'd not been able to heal her. And as well as the physical pain and the financial hardship and the social impact was this ritual uncleanness. Now, this element of the woman's experience is likely to feel hard for us to understand. But in the culture of the day and under Jewish law, a woman who was bleeding, either because of her monthly period or for another reason, was declared unclean. And you can read about the various rules in place about bleeding in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 15. Any objects that she touches, any person who touches her, is declared unclean. There are instructions about washing and cleaning and sacrifices to be made in the temple. And similar rules are in place for other things, food, skin diseases, mildew in the home, and other bodily discharges. Now, we may be tempted at this point to shrug off this part of the Bible as a more just ancient and obscure part, but I don't think we should. Because the law of Leviticus has something really, really significant to say. Listen to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31, which tells us why God has put these laws in place. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. It is not that there is something inherent in vaginal bleeding that means a woman cannot approach God, but rather that God uses these laws to give his people a visible, tangible sign of all of humanity's spiritual uncleanness. The rituals were a reminder. The physical separation showed everyone God is holy and we can't approach him. We are all unclean. We are less familiar um, with the use of ceremonial pictures in the modern Western world. Though I wonder if you think back to the king's coronation. You might recall that during the king's anointing, he went behind a screen and he wore um, linen, simple linen clothes. And this part of the ceremony is a tangible, physical 
ceremonial reality to represent something that is just as real, but yet is intangible. That is that the king is humble before God and before his people. So in the same way, the function of the ceremonial law is to symbolize through tangible action the deeper spiritual reality that affects all of us, all of humanity, not just this woman, which is that we are all spiritually unclean before a holy God. And so, in the time that Mark is writing, if you're a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, your daily lived experience of washing and keeping apart from others were an almost permanent physical reminder of a deeper spiritual reality. You are unclean. And then... She hears about Jesus. And perhaps feeling unable to come directly to him, she has faith to believe that if she can just get close to him, if she can just touch him, then she too could be healed. Interesting, isn't it? That desperation provokes a different response in Jairus as it does in this woman. Jairus is desperate for Jesus to notice him. This woman is desperate to avoid his notice. Both attitudes are in fact entirely human and they're founded in fear. And for this woman, I can just imagine the fear overtakes her as she admits what has happened It was me. And just like Jairus, she finds herself falling at Jesus' feet. Rather than merely noticing the human responses in this passage, let's dwell for a moment on the person of Jesus. Jesus notices people. Remember that this woman's bleeding had stopped the moment she had touched his clothing. Jesus stops, not because he needs to in order to meet her physical need, remember she's just been healed, but rather to show her and perhaps show the others who were there and perhaps show us too something of who he is. Jesus notices people. He sees them. He recognizes their pain. He sees their immediate physical need and he sees more than their immediate physical need. He moves towards them. He speaks words of comfort to them. And in doing so, he offers full restoration. Dear friends, don't miss this. Because this Jesus is our Jesus. You may feel alone in a crowd. Or you may feel desperate and afraid. You may feel on the fringes of things. You may feel mental anguish or physical pain. Or you may just be deeply, deeply aware of your sin and shame. 
whoever you are, whether you have status and significance like Jairus, or whether you feel more like the nameless woman of this passage, Jesus knows you, he sees you, and he longs to speak words of comfort to you. And as he comforts the trembling woman in verses 33 and 34, he says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And then in verse 35, he comforts Jairus as well. When the news arrives that it's too late for the teacher to do anything, he turns to him and says, don't be afraid, just believe. And he goes together with him to the family home. He shakes off the crowd because he knows that where he's going is not a place for all to see. He enters the family home. This is a family gripped with the first impulses of profound grief. She is dead. She is dead. Their 12-year-old daughter has stopped breathing. Numb silence and a deafening roar. For that mother and father, the earth has stopped and the earth is spinning. And in the midst of the shock and the agony, someone is saying, the child is not dead. Oh, Jesus, she is dead. Their friends are laughing and then their friends are gone. And suddenly it's just the two of them and Jesus and his companions. And next he's gone to the girl and he takes her by the hand and he says, Little girl, get up. Friends, this is Jesus ushering in a new kingdom. A kingdom where things are being turned upside down. Or rather, the right way up. Where death is being undone. And sick bodies are restored. This is a new kingdom where a little girl gets up from her deathbed and walks and eats, where a sick woman's bleeding stops with the touch of a cloak. This is a new kingdom. So who is this Jesus? How can this be? In fact, spoiler alert, that is the very question people are asking at the beginning of the next chapter of Mark. They're saying, who is this Jesus? Where did this man get these things? What's his wisdom? And what are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? You know, those questions are as important today as they were back then. Who is Jesus The first thing we know from Mark 5 is this. Jesus is God. He was indeed a walking, talking, speaking, ordinary human being, a carpenter from an average family in Nazareth. And yet, and yet, no mere human could do as he was doing. No mere human could know someone who'd touched their cloak in that crowd. No mere human could end 12 years of bleeding in a moment, could breathe life into a dead body just by speaking. All of these things point to a profound truth. 
Jesus was God himself, fully divine and fully human. Because God is the only one who has the power to turn things upside down, or rather, the right way up. There was no one like him, and there is no one like him. Another thing that we notice about Jesus in Mark 5 is that he will, for the sake of others, make himself unclean. Because if the miraculous nature of what is happening here isn't enough, there is more, there is actually much more to what Jesus is doing. When the woman touched his cloak, he would have become ceremonially unclean himself, according to the law. And when he sat by the little girl and took her by the hand... Again, he became ceremonially unclean according to the law because he touched a dead body. The significance of this would not be lost on those who originally read the gospel account, and it is profound today as well. Jesus was willing to make himself unclean for the sake of others. And these events are actually a teaser trailer for the most significant moment in history, when Jesus touched death in the fullest sense, death on a cross, when Jesus became ceremonially unclean in the fullest sense, bearing the full weight of our sin and our shame. If you're asking the question today, who's Jesus? Then the answer from Mark 5 is an answer that points to the very heart of the good news of the Christian faith. Jesus was a man willing to touch death and to give himself over to death that we all might live. The next thing that I notice about Jesus in this passage is that he offers us the greatest healing I know for many of us, when we read about events like these, we long to know whether God will heal us today from our physical pain or our illnesses, acute like the little girl's or chronic like the woman's. This, this is a tender topic for us. I know it is and actually one that I can't do full justice to now in the short time that we have. But let me say this, and I do want to say it very carefully. The healing of Jairus' daughter, as we understand it in the physical sense, was not full and was not final. In all likelihood, she grew up and had an ordinary human body with its limitations and its illnesses, just as the woman did. She was healed from the bleeding, but she would ultimately continue to live in a physical body that for both of these women would eventually age and in frailty die. Physical healing like this is temporary. Whenever I pray for people to be healed, I pray that by medicine 
or by miracle, their suffering would be relieved. It is a prayer that I pray often. But even as I pray for physical healing, I know I'm only praying for temporary relief, for a short-term ease. We can and we should pray for these things. And we can pray in the confidence that though he may or may not answer as we want immediately, he will answer fully and finally when he gives us our new bodies. Just as the healings in Mark 5 are a teaser trailer or a signpost, a preview for the great events of Mark chapters 15 and 16, when Jesus faces and defeats death once and for all, fully and finally, so too all physical, earthly healing is a wonderful and beautiful gift that points us to the greater gift of full and final healing that is to come when Jesus returns and raises us to new life. I sometimes wish that I knew the name of the 12-year-old girl. I also wish I knew the name of the sick woman. But maybe, maybe it's a good thing that I don't. Because for this reason, we're so much more likely to notice how Jesus addresses them. To the one, he says, Talitha, which means little girl. And to the woman, what does he call her? Look at verse 34. Daughter. Jesus calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. Friends, Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. And in this new kingdom, those who are afraid and alone, those who are hurting, those who are unclean, they're called daughters. And of course, sons. Jesus draws her out of the crowd because he wants not just for her to be healed from the bleeding, but he wants her to experience the restoration and the dignity of being called daughter. Jesus not only willingly becomes unclean himself, but his touch makes them clean. Just as those Levitical laws concerning ritual uncleanness were to be an outward sign of a deeper spiritual reality of our all people's uncleanness, so the outward visible sign of the physical healing in this passage is a tangible demonstration of the extent of the deeper spiritual healing and restoration that Jesus brings. In this new kingdom, Jesus calls those who are unclean daughters. And in this new kingdom, Jesus will wake those who are sleeping. For just as Jesus said of the little girl, she is asleep, in that her death was only temporary, so the scriptures 
describe the death of all believers in the same way, elsewhere in the New Testament, falling asleep. How much more wonderful then will the day be when all those who have fallen asleep, that is, they've died, will hear those words of Jesus. Arise. Get up. Today's story is a story of two desperate individuals, an anxious father and a sick woman. Both of them had heard something of Jesus Both of them knew their own helplessness. Both of them came to him, and Jesus came to both of them. Both of them found themselves falling at Jesus' feet. And both of them experienced a healing that foreshadowed a greater healing still. Friends, whoever we are, Whether we've heard very little of Jesus or whether we've known him for many years, we too can fall at the feet of Jesus in our own desperation and helplessness and shame. We can come to him. And if we do, we'll discover that he has come to us with words of comfort and a touch that restores life. For he has come to offer us the greatest healing, a healing from sin and shame and from all our spiritual uncleanness, a healing that places us firmly and restoratively into his family as sons and daughters. And the promise of a healing still to come on that day when he says to all who have fallen asleep in him, Talitha, kum, my child, arise. Amen. Shall we turn to him in prayer now? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you we turn to you in our, in our desperation, in our helplessness, with our hurts, our fears, with our sin and our shame. And we're so grateful that you have come to us, that you see us, that you offer comfort and an outstretched hand to all of us. Thank you for the greatest healing. Thank you for your death on the cross. We stand amazed that you would take our sin and shame and make yourself unclean. And we look forward to the day when all of us who have fallen asleep will arise and be given new bodies, fully and finally restored. Would you keep us going as we await that day? Amen.